Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Hey, Crime Writers On fans and S-Town fans, how about tuning into a podcast where there's some real in-depth discussion of stories? What is this, 1990 that came out? He is sporting a jerry curl that could make Lionel Richie jealous. <laughs> Be sure to check out These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast. My one disappointment with this episode was that there wasn't a good iced tea looks like. <laughs> right. or what do you mean by that? Well, a good SVU is like, looks like the captain went down with the shit. <laughs> Each episode, we look at a case from SVU, Criminal Intent, or Original Recipe, and talk about the real-life, ripped-from-the-headline stories that inspired the episodes. The way they're directed to just be like, someone was sexually assaulted? (laughs) (laughs) You are the lieutenant in charge of this division. Go to iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe to These Other Stories right now. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers on S-Town, the third part of our review and discussion of the latest podcast phenomenon, Shit Town, a spinoff of Serial created by the team at This American Life. In this episode, we'll discuss chapters five, six, and seven of yeah. S-Town. If you want to hear our conversations about chapters one through four, four. hit pause right here and go back pause. to our two previous episodes. Joining me right now is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Are you doing your Uncle Jimmy impression over there? I am, and I want to thank everybody on Twitter who was so concerned about my cough last time. I'm feeling a little better. I'll try to get through it this time. As I tried to explain on Twitter, you almost died. I almost died. (laughs) We all thought you were dying. Well, I'd like to let people think that, so I get the sympathy, but I, should, I pulled through. We should sort of go fund me. <laughs> For my recovery. Also joining us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, and licensed private investigator, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello. Uh, more calls on Twitter this week for us to pronounce your name correctly. Sorry <laughs> about that. You just did. I you know. did it. I know, but guess you're, what? You're, I'm gonna, on, you're on the ball. I'm going to do it wrong later. I I promise I will. (laughs) And also joining us is dystopian noir novelist and always confident, our favorite contrarian, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Roll Tide. (laughs) Another sports ball thing. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, yeah. So first off, I want to say we have received more email and voice memos, tweets, and Facebook comments around our coverage of S-Town than we have around anything we've talked about since Serial Season 1. Yes or no, Kevin? Yes. So because we have to cover three whole episodes of S-Town in this episode, we're going to be doing some follow-up with your stuff stuff. next week. We're going to respond to listener comments and critiques of our discussion. So again, if you really want to participate, let us know what you think we got really, really wrong Wrong. or really, really right. Right. Stop. Stop it. (laughs) I'm going to be like that family could have been and just be like, shut up, Uncle Jimmy. (laughs) 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 
So if you really want to participate, shoot us a note at crimewriterson at gmail.com or record a voice memo and email it to us if you want. But spoiler alert about next week's episode, one thing that I refuse to discuss is Brian Reed's voice. No, it does not bother me that he has certain vocal patterns like a little bit of up talk. If it bothers you, I'm sorry you aren't able to see the forest for the trees. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe in talking about voices unless they're like real, 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 real bad because uh, you're born with the voice you have and you do with it what you can. And that's the whole thing about podcasting, right? It opens up opportunities for someone with every kind of voice. If it was a TV show, would you talk about somebody's face like that? I wouldn't. Yes. <laughs> I told you would, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so um, let's start with episode five. We open up on this episode with Brian uh, getting in contact with Tyler's mom and grandma. Uh, he hears that Tyler is up on nine felony charges now for theft from his shenanigans on the property that belonged to John. Brian, interestingly, talks about a pattern that emerges when he talks to grandma and he sort of associates it with everybody that he's talked to for this story. And that is a pattern of talking about broader injustice, like a person will talk about this thing being unjust and that thing being unjust. And next thing you know, they're sort of like doing the zoom out where they're like, what's also unjust are those cops shooting those kids in Chicago. And, and cue the opera music. And cue the opera music. Kevin, what did you think of the way he sort of explained that the way that conflict sort of rolls out in every one of these conversations? I thought it was a pretty good op- observation on his part, um, you know, that he picked up as a commonality between what everybody talks about. I don't know if that's a shit town, u- unique quality. But I suppose that that's a you know a, a a good commentary on human nature when when it rains it pours. Mm-hmm. Now, Laura, episode five, a big big swath of it was about your in episode four and three nemeses, uh, the cousins, <laughs> <laughs> and we get a nice long set of conversations with cousin Rita and her side of the story and. One of the things that we hear is that her version of events exactly matches up with Tyler's version of events down to the detail, but she's just looking at everything through a different lens. And I'm wondering what you were thinking when you were hearing, you know, these sections of episode five. Well, I was thinking back to we had talked about, you know, is Tyler actually going to be the bad guy? And we hadn't heard from Rita, and I had kind of pigeonholed her into, ooh, she's going to be like the villain of this whole story. And I was kind of like hoping for some more intrigue. But when we actually hear her and hear about how she was traveling back and forth and hear about what was really going on with Mama and maybe that her situation wasn't quite what we thought it was, she sounded reasonable. She didn't sound like she was out. I mean, you know, who, who's not out to find some gold that's like buried out back? I mean, come on now. But I think it definitely, you know, like we talked about in Serial Season 2, we flipped back and forth from one episode to the next who we felt sympathy for. And this definitely made me feel a lot more sympathy for Rita and a little bit like Tyler. OK, enough's enough. What did you think about the cousins, Toby, in this episode after hearing Rita's side of the story? You know, especially what she had to say about the way mama was living with John. You know, the, the reason why they sort of came off badly, I think, at the beginning is just because you'd been introduced to these other people and asked to sort of see the world through their eyes or the situation through their eyes briefly because they don't really act in any way that I think is objectionable. You know, they show up and there's this guy who they've never heard of who's calling John's mother mama 
and seeing it's going to do all this stuff and just digging in just a tiny little bit to what the people at the hospital were asking him, he wasn't what he claimed. I found them very sympathetic. Now, Kevin, there was that juxtaposition where he, you know, recounted exactly what Tyler said and then had mm-hmm. Rita telling the same story. And it was the same, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, that was a really good story. Yeah, because right? a lot of times, you know, on the like my perspective was this and that, that I wasn't yelling. A lot of the large details <laughs> were the same. They were both being truthful. But you're right. They see well, a glass half empty and a glass half full. And so, you know, yeah, of course, we we stopped at the house first and not the hospital because the hospital wasn't on the way. We passed the house first and we were going to get some clothes. And but the detail that was the most disturbing that she corroborated was the nipple piercing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when Tyler says it, it's, again, you could just go like on rolling your eyes about, oh, it's just another thing. She's trying to embellish how awful the cousins are. They even take down, you know. No, she really wanted those nipple rings. She really wanted the nipple rings. <laughs> and can you, well, I can't get, can you just cut it off? Cut off the nipple. She's like, yeah, I said that. The, yeah. But her point wasn't like, I actually want you to slice open his nipple to get it. It's she thought he had stolen it. And so she was just like, what? You can't get it off his nipple. Just cut it off. Right. You know, I, I don't I don't think she was genuinely saying take a razor and slit his dead nipple open so you can get that. Ring. <laughs> she was sort you of questioning. So? No? She was questioning the trustworthiness. I mean, it comes off that way. But then when he sort of goes a little deeper, it's about her questioning the trustworthiness of everyone surrounding. Well, I don't know. I think I, and I could be remembering it wrong, but I, I thought that she says she wants something of his. Yeah, she said she dealt with so many undertakers or whatever, and she doesn't trust them. Yeah, she doesn't trust a lot of people in the old shit town, does she? And she no. grew up. And and one of the things that sort of changes my perspective on her too is to her hear that she's from there because yeah. the way that she's described early in the podcast is like they're outsiders just swooping in. No, they grew up there. They own property there. Their perspective is grounded in something. They actually did what John said he wanted to do and got the fuck out of Dodge. And she was on his contact list. Yeah, she wasn't, though, what, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, or sixth on his contact? No, she wasn't. And (laughs) that that whole thing is a little sketchy, but Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it goes to show she wasn't just a long lost, conveniently shown up relative. Right. There was some connection, including uh, family blood. You know, the other thing that she talks to Brian about, Laura, is her suspicion of the cops in shit town. Yeah. And I think initially, if you're like me, you're thinking, oh, maybe this is backing up our theory that the cops have the treasure or whatever. But really what it comes down to is that this local cop is friends with Tyler, which is like a pretty common small town dynamic, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the good old boys network, um, <laughs> you know, in listening to it, you know, in the beginning, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, maybe they did get in there into the freezer first. But then as she's going along, I'm thinking, well, this explains why maybe things, you know, you could see how things moved along the way they did. And Tyler m- maybe didn't get in trouble initially mm-hmm. or got some tips based on this connection that he had. But it also is such a small town, such a small town thing. And and it could lead you to think that the cops were in cahoots with him or that they were maybe turning a blind eye to things. And and I was wondering if more was going to come of that. But then I feel like that thread, that was the end of it. Because I was, I was really curious if at some point an outside, somebody with a little bit more clout from an outside agency might come in and review things. Right. I mean, the bottom line was, 
Tyler might be friends with the cop, but he's still held up on nine felony charges. Yeah. It's not like he's getting away with. No, but it, it did seem just that things were maybe you could just sort of see that the way that things moved along was because of the people that knew each other. Right. Now, Kevin, we kind of get a big, I think, character turn in this story with Tyler specifically. Mm-hmm. And I think Brian does a really admirable job of pushing back when he's talking to Tyler and Tyler's revealing some things about his character and the way he interacts with the world that are contrary to, I think, the picture that we have as an audience of Tyler, but that also Brian had. Specifically, the, the guy who stole his grandfather's gun. Prior to this gun. conversation, right, yeah. where, where Tyler tells him, you know, a guy stole a gun, and I my plan was to tie him up to a chair and cut off his fingers one at a time. And Brian's like, but you weren't really going to do that. And he's like, no, no, I was... No. no, 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 don't worry about it. It only would take one finger. Yeah. Because we say, no, I, I guarantee, I wouldn't ever have to take off two fingers. Come yeah. on, Brian. Yeah. The first finger would have done it. Now, now he frames this in some background about Tyler. Yeah. Which Those- is ironic, because he's talking about somebody stealing something that belonged to him and the way he felt about that. Right, and he's versus the cousin, things. Right, yeah. <laughs> right, but, you know, Brian frames that with, like, the bigger context. We hear a lot more about Tyler's upbringing, his abusive dad, which they fact-checked. Mm-hmm. And he says he wasn't abusive, he just whooped his family. So that's fact-checked, obviously, true. But we get this big turn, and all of a sudden, Tyler who had been set up in previous episodes as the guy who was the underdog, who was the son to John, who was taking care of Mama, who had all good intentions, we now see the other side, maybe the side that the courts see, maybe the side that the cousins see. Or was he driven to something else in his grief about John, his anger about his estate and John's absence as a positive role model in his life? Maybe maybe he was like this all along. I I just or, I felt or maybe like he was like it all along. I, I felt like it was a layer peel back. That's yeah, how it, it felt was. to me. Toby, did you feel that way? Or did you feel like like Tyler had changed, or did you feel like we were just getting the layers peeled back and seeing more of this person who'd been painted as a character up until this point? The thing about cutting fingers off and the fact that he was like seriously thinking about going through with it, I think that was like that kind of sadism. I think was a little bit different. But just him being sort of a shady guy, I think it was made a little more explicit. I think you could have read between the lines beforehand. Whatever legitimate claim he has on things, he's pushing it to the limit and beyond. He's going to try and get the most he can out of this situation by taking the cars and stealing them and signing John's name to him. And, and Committing fraud. Yeah. Right. And, and all, not all really these kinds denying of it, right? Not, not like really And, and not denying it. it. Yeah. And it's not... You know, he's not saying, well, you know, I had a right to do this. He just did it. Right. Which is, I think, why we we get a lot of setup with, you know, we know or we think we know that John's wishes are that his estate would go to Tyler. And we have to care. We have to care. And And that's why we think Tyler is a piece of shit from the beginning. Like, maybe we won't care. Right. Right. I mean, so John is vouching for him. And so and we see a lot of that. And so at first in this episode, when we hear that he's misbehaving. All right. Oh, he's been shut up by the, the the cousins. And so we as listeners are kind of feeling like, well, you know, he has sort of a right to do that. I'm, I understand why he's like Going snooping there, around, digging those holes. getting his, th- his tools back and his things like that. And, you know, and then by the time he's like, I'm calling you with a flatbed and I'm taking these buses. It isn't just being cheeky anymore. Right. Slowly, we're, we're, we're 
losing confidence in him. And right. I, so I think that narratively that was very well done. Laura, side question. Yes. How much do you want to see pictures of the house that Tyler is building, like on some HGTV program? <laughs> well, it was like reminded me of something out of like a Dr. Seuss book. Right. How is this even standing? So, yes, I was hoping for some photos of that. I really feel like Tyler, I don't know what his legal situation is right now, but if he's like really in a pickle, like start a blog, like show off the state <laughs> that you built. <laughs> Tens of millions of us really, really want to see what it looks like because it sounds really unbelievable, yeah. right? Is there going to be any yeah. plumbing in this house? Did you have to lay like electrical wiring? Know. No, you don't know. Okay. But all I know is that like if there is plumbing, it's probably done with aqueduct materials that were inside a bus <laughs> sitting in a field for 20 years. I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm dying I, I, to see yeah, I think he's got a composting toilet, right? I don't know. <laughs> I saw a tiny house hunters. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he has a uh, bookcase that swings open into a ladder. Turns into so a stairs. Right. So you get the staircase. It doesn't sound loft. tiny. He has a pool table, yeah. Yeah. which yeah. that's a different conversation because those aren't cheap either. But anyway, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about toward the end of episode five is only in retrospect, not while I was listening, is that this episode is sort of the end of the narrative of what I would call the mystery part of S-Town. Mm -hmm. Because after this, episode six and seven, it really takes a huge inward narrative turn. Yeah, there's an external story and an internal this story. This is kind of the end of the external story, right? I agree with you. And I think when we look at the last section here, these last three episodes, this is where we start to, it loses its way a little bit. Before we get to that end, Toby, one of the things I loved most about this episode, and I'm not trying to influence you, you don't have to tell me whether or not you liked it or hated it, was that we hear about this other boy, Michael. I'm calling him a boy because it really seems like, you know, John makes these friends when they're young men. And John's, you know, extolling him as his lost opportunity, like the one that got away, the person who's now lost forever and is living a real in a real bad place. This guy, Michael, that he also, just like Tyler, brought under his wing, had over to his house all the time. Cut to Brian saying, I track Michael down to this bleak scene. And Michael is happy, healthy, relatively prosperous compared to his hometown folks there in shit town. Some people call Manhattan shit town. uh, So you never know. Yeah, I can't call it that ever. (laughs) Uh, I'm curious to know, Toby, what you thought of this part of the podcast and of Brian finding and talking to this guy who basically used to be Tyler. What did you think? So I thought a few things, and one of which, you know, John is a narcissist, and I think falling, in his mind, falling outside of his orbit consigns you to not living the full life that you could, I guess. Oh, to John. Right. So I think he thinks that Mike leaving John's orbit was to Mike's detriment. Right. How could his life be as good as it was back when he was hanging out with John? The thing that I kept thinking about was... This makes Tyler's claim to anything that isn't like specifically something that he owned very weak because essentially it's just a matter of timing, Mm -hmm. you know, and like Tyler would have moved on. He would have done, you know, he would have gotten married and John would have like pushed him off and there would have been somebody new. Mm -hmm. And if he had committed suicide, then it would have been the next guy who felt like he was owed something. I, I thought it was an important part. And I think it put all this other stuff in perspective and sort of made Tyler seem more like kind of an episode Mm -hmm. in John's life rather than sort of a central focus over the course of his life. Well, all I kept thinking about was that John, as much as he's helpful 
and supportive and and giving Tyler edu- you know an education that he never received and giving him love and support that he never received. Mm-hmm. He's also very very dependent. And it's like you have to go there every day and you have to show up when I tell you to. How many times do we hear Brian talking to John where he's like, I'm waiting for Tyler to come over or Tyler was just here. And it starts off very sweetly, but you come to realize. And of course, at the very end of the podcast, we realize how dark it gets, that it really is a kind of dark dependence on this kid. And, you know, Laura, uh, Michael, you know, in front of Brian Reed on tape sort of does this theorizing and supposing and you know he also talks about knowing that John was gay he mm-hmm. you know theorizes that you know John loved him probably but he didn't reciprocate those feelings and that as soon as he made other attachments he was sort of on the outs with John and it sort of sets up this idea that that John never had like real relationships and and that sort of is kind of where the episode ends but you know what did you think of this guy Michael and and what he brought to the story It was, to me, sort of another example of what we hear as sort of John's perception of somebody or a situation being not really what that situation actually was. So for me, it was starting to get more of a window into how John's mind was working and his psyche and maybe that there was something much more complex going on with him and his personality and his lifestyle. And you're talking about being dependent. Well, it was like almost like John was also finding people that would have to be dependent on him, whereas he was dependent on them more emotionally and fulfilling this kind of need for intimacy that he really wasn't able to get in the town that he lived in. He's finding these people that are dependent on him financially. And so it kind of works both ways there, this sort of dynamic that's going back and forth between them. But it really, I think for me, was the start of much more of a window into just how sad John's life really was and how lonely it seemed that he was having to orchestrate these situations to sort of fulfill what he wasn't able to get emotionally in a relationship. Which, of course, is all of what episode six is about, which we'll get to in a second. Um, But Kevin, at this point in the story, you don't know that you're going to be wrapping up all of the sort of driving threads Mm -hmm. of the story, the mystery, the treasure hunt, the... The supporting characters. What were you thinking at this point, at the end of episode five of Vestan? Well, I mean, I think he did a good job, like you said, of setting up Tyler's character and flipping it. I mean, I think think a lot of people at this point still feel like the treasure hunt is going to be a major part of the narrative throughout the the end of the story, and that we see Tyler now maybe as the bad guy. So I'm thinking that maybe, you know, there's going to be more of a, a hunt for the treasure. And I think ultimately we're kind of let down by that. So in order to kind of like fulfill that loss, I say you should try Hunt a Killer because it puts your true crime sleuthing skills to the test. So smooth, Kevin. And you don't even have to leave the house. Very smooth. Smooth ad transition. Hunt a Killer is the we send you a box and you go find a killer game. So you're saying that if people pause after episode five, this would fulfill that for them. I think it would. Okay. I think it would. See, these stories unfold via creepy correspondence. You get things like letters, articles, objects, and tools all mailed to you from a a Hannibal Lecter type killer curator. And the the best part about Hunt a Killer is the online community of armchair detectives that you work with. I mean, these people are really obsessed. 
It's like you're, you're living in your own true crime series. They got Facebook pages and groups and forums and podcasts and live videos. Every everything you, you need to contribute to the experience. So it's now, like being those missing Maura Murray guys. Yeah, we need to play this damn game. We really do. <laughs> I know it's it's pretty addictive. All you have to do is apply for membership at huntakiller.com. Oh, right, Will they take us, you think? Well, they only take a few hundred new members a month. They better take us. Well, I, I might We're know somebody. We're the goddamn somebody. crime writers from Crime Writers On, damn it. <laughs> I might know somebody, but you know you don't want to wait too long. They have different subscription plans to choose from, too. And Hunt a Killer also makes an incredible gift for the mystery lover in your life. So to help support our show, they have offered a 10% discount for our listeners. If you use the code WRITERS, you'll get 10% off. So head on over to huntakiller.com and register now. Join the hunt. What was that promo code? Writers. Writers. Sorry, just missed my chance. I feel like I wanted to say it. (laughs) Writers. Writers. All right. Anything else you want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I just love the idea of an estate sale where you get rid of all the old junk the mercury contaminated tools. Oh God! <laughs> the lumber hidden in uh, old school buses. It says spring cleaning and getting rid of those negative vibes and getting all that good stuff. That's why I'm like loving Capari Beauty. What does that have to do with an estate sale? Well, it's like you know, out with the old, in with the new. Oh, okay. Their line of body product packs is everything that you'd want in a moisturizer without any of the bad oh, stuff. Oh, throw away all the other crap in your bathroom. Yeah, with the Capari. Okay. There's no sulfates, silicones, I know. GMOs, I love it. mercury. I love it. Yeah, and you smell like a coconut cake. Yeah, it's 100 organic <laughs> coconut oil. So we've got Capari's. Coconut Melt, it's the ultimate multitasker. It's my favorite. The uh, lightweight sheer oil, it's perfect as a face moisturizer. My other favorite. The Coconut Balm gives you intense nourishment for extra dry skin. My third favorite. And the Coconut Body Glow, just what you need for that first bare leg day of the season. That's your favorite. Yeah, I like the first bare leg day myself. It makes me shimmer like I'm a beach goddess. Laura, I know that you also like Kapari. Have you been uh, using it to get through the the last of these winter months and prep for spring? I have been. I've been using it on my feet. I'm getting ready to be flip-flop ready in a few weeks, so I have been, um, my feet have been good luck with that. Uh, a few weeks. I'm going. I'm leaving New Hampshire for that. I'm leaving New Hampshire for that. So, and I am eager to use the shimmery gold Kopari that kind of gives you a little bit of a tone on your legs when I can actually wear something besides pants. Right. Right. Yeah. I love it. I. You yeah. trust me. You know. I bought a ton. I smell like coconut all the time. I'm down with the Kopari, like for It's real. like sleeping with an Almond Joy bar, <laughs> but in the best possible way. <laughs> Say aloha to the best skin and hair of your life with Kapari. Go to kaparibeauty.com slash crime and get 20% off your order. That's Kopari, K-O-P-A-R-I, beauty.com slash crime, crime for 20% off. Kaparibeauty.com slash crime. 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 Okay. Yeah. We're moving... <laughs> Poor Uncle Jimmy. I don't know how I feel about the fact that we have turned Uncle Jimmy into a thing, but like I see it very much as a positive. We're giving each other affirmations. Affirmations are good. (laughs) Affirmations are good. All right. Let's move on and discuss episodes six and seven of Shit Town. Episode six, as Brian promises at the end of episode five, is all about the love that John never really had in his life. Dot, dot, dot. 
or did he? Before we get into all the really depressing shit that happened in this episode that we heard about, Kevin, what did you think of Brian Reed's use of that country song to illustrate what love is supposed to be in the (laughs) ideal? Um, (laughs) Kind of like, let's not let the New York guy pick what the country song's supposed to be. (laughs) I'm still wondering why uh, Rose for Emily is the out music. Yeah, we've got a couple emails about that. But you like that song, right? I do. It doesn't fit, but I like it. Does it not fit? No, I mean, it doesn't have to fit. I mean, think of the, the, the theme music to Taxi. Like, that doesn't like fit the mood of the the thing and, and this doesn't but I like the song but he it's... recommends A Rose for Emily for Brian to read at the beginning isn't that oh. the connection oh shut the fuck up Toby you've ruined it <laughs> for me he's actually <laughs> listening my god seven <laughs> hours later he's like don't you remember there's like a Shirley Jackson and it was A Rose for Emily yes. and then there was something else he hates yes. the clock metaphor but he remembers that shit yeah and makes us all feel Good stupid. Man. I'm bowing down. I'm bowing, bowing. Jesus to Christ. Uh, anyway, I like this song. All right. Well, I want to talk about Olin Long. He's the character that ends up contacting Brian Reed and saying, oh, hey, I was a good friend of John's for a long time and... I'm also gay, and we had this like other kind of relationship that's very, it's not a spoiler, because everyone who's listening to this has heard of this, like Brokeback Mountain really style of relationship, but yeah. with without the romantic love story, it's more about the could-have-beens. I just want to, first of all, before we get into the content here, compliment, well, it is content, one piece of what I think was very, very clever expositional writing. We don't hear a lot of this in the podcast. Brian Reed, when he meets Olin Long and Olin Long shows up at his hotel room slash studio, he describes what Olin Long is wearing, which stuck out to me because I'm like, he doesn't do that for other people on the show except for the T-shirt at the funeral thing. Like, he doesn't say she was wearing this and whatever. And that's just not the style of the show. Yeah. But then, like, a half an hour later, Olin Long says tells a story about John and says, you know, I was dressed just like this. And John says, I only dress like that when I'm doing something fancy or whatever. And I'm like, oh, that's why a half an hour ago we heard that like throw in quick expositional line. And I just want to say, just shout out to just the narrative story, cohesive writing. It is not over the top. It's just clean and really, really good. And I think a couple of those throwaway lines were missing for some of the larger themes and and stuff that's coming up in six and seven. So we're going to talk about that. (laughs) Because in this case, like it's a good example of when like the show really hits it with clean, great narrative journalism style writing. So this episode is about a lot of stuff. I mean, I think ostensibly it's about John's secret life as a gay man in shit town. But we hear a lot about, we've gotten a lot of feedback from our audience about the explicitness of some of the details as Olin is telling the story to Brian about the kind of life that John had and his relationships with other men and these, you know, sort of one-off encounters. Toby, I'm curious to know what you thought about this part of the podcast, his conversation with Olin and some of these stories that we heard about, about John's life through Olin's eyes. I thought it just kind of went on too long. Yeah. It gave insight into John and, you know, I, I think a lot of it was kind of predictable, but it was good to hear that it was actually the way it was. But why you would give over one-seventh of this story to this is, is the only part where I was I was like, okay, you know, mm. let's let's wrap this up. Did you feel like we could have just gotten the same information and it could have had the same impact in half the time? Is that is that what you're saying or are you saying that – 
the story didn't have as much impact as Brian Reed thought it might have. Well, I think those are connected. Right. You know, and I guess this kind of thing is just not my thing. Mm -hmm. So I could see where there would probably be people who thought it was the best part of the series. But for me, it seemed a little disconnected, I guess. It seemed like the thematic setup and sort of the tone of the story took a break. Mm Mm-hmm. In six, and then it kind of came back in seven. I, I realize that there's a debatable, unlike everything else I say, which is obviously right. <laughs> uh, this, this is one that you could, that's definitely debatable. That's just a matter of taste, I think. Well, what do you think, Laura? Where did you fall down on episode six and how it fit in the narrative? Did you think that Olin's story and his part of the story was too long? Yeah, and I have to tell you, so we came out of the last episode and it was like, but John never had a relationship. Or did he? And I was like, ooh, I was all excited. And I, I had this whole theory. I'm like, it was the town clerk. He was not gay. He was bisexual. And she took the money. And that's why they were on the phone. And I was like all pumped up. I thought there was going to be this big intrigue coming. And then I was like, uh, okay. I mean, it, it to me, it was just more insight into John's sad existence, which isn't initially how he portrayed himself to Brian, you know, in terms of what was going on in his life. But it, it did drag on for me. And some of it was good. Some of it for me was a little, there was one part that for me made me uncomfortable listening to it. And I was like, the part where they were sitting in the truck and it was like the one day that mm-hmm. John was clear. And I was like, yep. oh, I felt like I don't want to hear any more of this. And then the details were so personal and so graphic. And I, I felt a, that was the one time I felt a little uncomfortable listening. And I was like, yeah, that felt too personal for me. There was a lot of personal stuff in here. You know, I think I'll give you my opinion about what this was about and and why it was so long. I think that we forget that being gay in America for a lot of Americans is a completely different experience than being gay in a metropolitan area or a coastal area or a place that is more socially kind of on board with the progressive side of American thinking, right? And this episode, I think, is... Or being a 20-year-old gay man now versus being a 20-year-old gay man 30 years ago. So here we have Olin, who's a successful guy with a military career, works as a nurse, like by any measure in American life is a successful, you know, sort of mainstream guy. He has a family who cannot talk about the fact that he's gay. This is a man like in his 50s. And so he is, he's still very much lifestyle-wise closeted. He's still very much in the margins you know, of his own experience. Uh-huh. And he's friends with a guy in shit town who blows his nose in tissues that are already sitting on the floor, which, by the way, was fucking disgusting. <laughs> Great detail, though, right? <laughs> but I could not get that out of my head like for the rest of the podcast. Um, excuse That's me. That's funny because there's something about the flower bed that I couldn't get out of my head. <laughs> the bushes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, that part, too, was a little, yeah. It was pretty personal, yeah. So, But this is, I think, and what I think is important about this episode is that it is a reminder that very much like the race conversations earlier in the show might be shocking to people who aren't accustomed to just being around people all the time who talk this way, that this is the gay experience for a lot of Americans today. And I think that's important. I don't think the storytelling around it, as much as I really, really liked Olin as a character, I liked the way Brian introduced him when they were going into it. I was like, yeah. 
But then at the end, and we had this like protracted Brokeback Mountain and stuff, I said, I, I, re- I felt like I was watching Brokeback Mountain for the 57th time. <laughs> I, I, re- I really did. I mean, it was just, and I agree with Toby, that one-seventh of the podcast was too much time to give this facet, especially when you look at all the bullet points here I have about episode five. See? All uh, these bullet points. Oh, yeah, yeah. Episode five points. was like full of story turns and mm-hmm. new facets of things and Rita and Tyler's criminal side and this. And this was an hour of mostly just this one idea. I mean, where did you land on it, Kevin? Um, yeah, I thought it was as an artistic choice. I wouldn't have made that. I think that Brian did a very good job earlier in knowing when to paraphrase and know when, knowing when to be explicit about themes and sort of higher ideas that we should pay attention to. And I think he could have really moved along Olin without so many purient details. I think the purpose of him telling the most degrading story is to show a type of sadness right. in it was John's sad. life. It was very sad. Right? But I don't think we uh, that, that ever sort of gets pointed out. I think we're kind of lost in sort of the shock value of, of this um, hookup. Is that where you and think not, that some narrative could have helped? Yeah. I think, I think some context could have helped. And I think, I think there ends up being a lot that happens in 6 and especially 7 where you just go, well, what? Where right. did that come from? But episode 7 is so ambitious it contains so many I mean episode 7 is like three storylines mm-hmm. you know it's like the the founding of shit town and the mercury poisoning and the uh church, church thing yeah, yeah the fact that episode 6 is this one thing yeah i wonder about the choice of making it and i i wonder if that and here he, here's what it leads me to think and you know this too because yeah. you've been in these shoes when you are reporting a story and you have sort of the oh shit interview that changes the story for you. You sometimes in the final product pay too much attention to that one important character or interview. So my belief is that John being gay and sort of the the pain and the sadness that that brought to the story, that came to Brian later in the storytelling and shifted maybe influenced more of the narrative from the beginning and shaped this whole thing as an arc. So for him, it was seminal to this whole story. And so as a result, we get an hour of this one thing yeah. with all of this other stuff swirling around. And especially coming off of the high of episode five. Right. I mean, I think if you asked anybody, like, what do you want in episode six? Now it's come. Oh, I want to know more. Is, is, what's what's Tyler up to? And uh, what's going on with this legal case? And who's going to find the gold? And to drastically turn inward, it seemed a little bit of a whiplash. Right. I, I just kept thinking of when we were writing notes on a killing. And I yeah. had that one interview with, at the time, prosecutor's wife, because he's a judge now and he yeah. couldn't give us the interview. And she told us that great story about him writing his closing argument. And it was such a great, important thing for me to develop him as a character that we wrote a whole chapter about it that our publisher was later like, our editor was like, nobody cares about this. <laughs> like, yeah. This shouldn't yeah. be here. Yeah. Um, it, actually, it's an excellent example because the reason why it didn't work is that the people it, it was about were, were people who come into the book later. Right. And we haven't had it, the reader hasn't been invested in that character throughout and this is kind of the same thing here, where we've been invested in all sorts of other things, and in John, it went on way too long, and I think it, there was no context. And, here, and here's yeah. the thing. We got some flack, and by the way, 
We were the subject of the first ever tweet storm with a thread that anyone's ever thrown our way. I was very excited, even though it was a criticism this week, yes, about our handling of the race stuff in an earlier episode. And I think it was perhaps a result of the fact that what we were talking about was narrative stuff. Mm -hmm. We were talking about how Brian set up that conversation and all that hate speech was going on and... We were just sort of saying he did a good job writing around it so that that wasn't the focus. The focus was moving the narrative. And we were the subject, I think, of some criticism, as the podcast has been, about how it... The criticism is that it glosses over race. I don't think it does. I think it includes the race stuff. And in spite of it, tells a story around it. But we were the subject of that. And I don't, I don't want people to think that we don't think that John's experience is devastatingly sad and, like, shouldn't happen and is a human rights issue and all that stuff. I think we all, the four of us, all agree that you should be able to love who you love and not sneak around and have guys masturbating on your porch and that be, like, the the limit of your love experience. Yes or no? Like, we all agree on that, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes no. or no? Except for the <laughs> masturbating on the porch part. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. You got to qualify the answer. No, I mean, we, we all agree that should not be the limit of the love that you can experience no. in your life. It's sad. It's sad as hell. But no, na- people should live the, be able to live their lives. Right. But the narrative yeah. value is the people different love. than the... Im- Im- I'm not here to pass judgment on John's life. I'm here to talk about the podcast. <laughs> okay, good. I just want to make that clear. No, 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 you know, so let's Can't talk- wait for the next tweet story. <laughs> all right, so I'm going to go ahead and turn the page now. We're going to go on episode... Episode 7, knowing everything we know about John, were you surprised to hear he was an early booster of and founding father of Shit Town? When we heard in yeah. episode 7 yeah. that he's I the one. It. Yeah. I thought it, I, I was like, wait, wait a minute. Did I just hear that correctly? He helped yes. plan the Christmas parade, Laura. He was the Laura Bricker of Shit Town. <laughs> <laughs> were you surprised to hear that? I, I was. I was. I was like, you know, what happened? He sounds like he was so inv- like these other people were like, oh, no, he was always so positive. And I'm like, this doesn't add up. It no, it doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't add up. And, um, you know, one of the things that I also felt and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, you know, narratively went on a little too long was his like relationship and dispute with his co-founder of Shit Town. Lovely, lovely character. I wish she had been introduced earlier in the podcast. Somebody that I really felt like I could root for, the woman who in the flower shop with John. Um, the original town clerk. Yes, the original town yeah. clerk. But I, I want to just, you know, we have a kind of a lot to talk about here and then a couple of bigger themes. So I just want to ask a couple of questions. Kevin, you're a former journalist. Uh, you heard the conversation between Brian and Tyler in which Brian made it clear to Tyler that if he, in fact, found the gold, oh, yeah. maybe you shouldn't tell me. And then Tyler asked him to turn off the tape. Do you think Tyler has the gold? Yes or no? No. I don't think he does. What do you think that was about? Well, I think he was talking about, you know, I think he said he already was worried that he had shared too much about the stealing the buses and all the other stuff. I mean, I think he shared an awful lot with Brian about, you know, what had been happening at John's place after he passed away. And he's facing charges. Right. Or I don't know if this time if he already had. I no, mean, this I think summer he knew, he's I think he knew that he was in in some sort of peril. I don't know. I actually think that was that had a different meaning. It was pretty like a little protracted thing. Laura, did, did you pick up what uh, Brian was laying down? Like I did, that maybe Tyler had in fact found something. Yeah, I mean, I did, but I didn't. I I would have been surprised. I think if Tyler had found something, I, I so I wanted to think 
because you know I was missing uh, like the intrigue and sort of mystery that was at the beginning um, in the more beginning episodes for me so I was kind of hoping but then I was thinking no he's probably afraid that like all this tape that he's you know recorded with Brian is going to get subpoenaed and used against him now and maybe that's what they were talking about. I feel like it was an attempt to make us think that Tyler had found something and end that thread because that was kind of where the thread started. But I don't know how I feel about that being the end of the thread. But I don't know. Part of me is just wishing that somebody found something on that property. I'm with you. <laughs> so uh, we're, we're just going to roll into the protracted part of the episode that was the radio lab about mercury poisoning. That was the... <laughs> <laughs> Long, giant uh, chunk slash science lesson slash many experts slash postmortem postmortem (laughs) mercury poisoning mystery part of Shit Town and John's story. Toby, what did you think of the way that we were introduced to this mercury poisoning idea and how protracted it was? In episode seven of S-Town. And what did you think of this idea that this this theory that perhaps a lot of what we hear from John and a lot of the personality is driven by the fact that he's a mad hatter driven crazy by mercury poisoning? I actually liked this part of it. I thought it was interesting. I was completely convinced by it, quite honestly. It seems to me very likely that he was generally a kind of odd, depressed guy who through exposure to mercury, as people have for centuries, went insane. I shouldn't put it quite that way. It's not it had, PC. We know what right, you mean. Right, but, but there were, like, there were con- psychological consequences to his exposure. And, and especially when you put it in the context of how not too long before, he came off quite differently. And this sudden personality change in a way that sort of tracked with what has historically been associated with mercury exposure. It was a little bit out of tune with the rest of it. I, you know, I wasn't clocking it, but it wasn't like episode six where I was like, oh God, is this all this episode is going to be about? When I was listening to this whole mercury poisoning section, I kept looking at the clock on the podcast timer, not Uh because I didn't like it, but because I couldn't believe this was happening so close to the end. With 20 minutes left in this podcast. Yes, I felt like... This is what episode six, episode six being like mm-hmm. the, the the pathological, medical, environmental, ironic reason that John might be crazy because we're looking for gold this whole time. He's making gold this whole time. And that made him crazy. I mean, I know that's not clinically correct. And I'm sorry for all of the doctors out there who are now going to write me emails to say using the word crazy. I know it's not in the DSM-5. I'm sorry. <laughs> but that's kind of made the point, mad. right? Yeah. To me, this is like, this is what episode six really could have been. And then episode seven could have tied up, you know, the love stuff, the town stuff. The, I, I, You know, I'm not I, I'm not complaining. I did think this part was interesting. Were you also, Kevin, looking at the, the timer on it, the podcast? Yeah. Like, I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was one of two things in this episode which seemed to come out of like freaking nowhere about John, where there were no b- breadcrumbs laid before this, which makes it... Not shocking, because sometimes you want a surprise. We didn't have a, a fire-building scene earlier yeah, in this. A surprise in, the... in this is that, like, there was a time when John was happy about Woodstock. He, he used to be a... Yes. That's a surprise. That, that was a great episode that's seven a, moment. That, yeah, that's a great surprise. The fact that uh, he's been ingesting and, and inhaling mercury for, for years and years and years. I'm thinking, 
have I even heard the word Mercury at any other time in this podcast? No. Nope. That kind of came out of nowhere. Right. And I think there could have been a couple. I mean, the only chemical we ever really heard about that w- was the was the cyanide. Right. You right. know, the potassium. What is it? Potassium cyanide? Is that the? I don't know. You know. Th- 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 <laughs> I'm going to write that down. It made sense. It fit in with the whole other thing about his use of chemicals and smelting and the stuff that he was doing, which was, you know, nobody else was doing. But all of a sudden, to kind of find out sort of at the end that that is a contributing factor to perhaps a condition, I mean, thematically, it works great. Again, it's this whole thing about the thing that he loves and the thing that he's great at. And, and the best the time, out in the world. The best out in the world. And it has to do with time. And it's taking away his time. And killing, you know, all that's But it's like, where the fuck did this come from? Right. <laughs> You're not wrong. It's interesting and good and important. Yeah. Narratively, it's in the wrong place. Yeah, and I think, and we'll talk about the whole episode, but I think this whole episode was structured backwards. Yeah. I would have liked to have restructured this. Yeah, well, I would have liked to have structured the final two episodes differently. Mm-hmm. And in my starly kind story consultant mind, which, by the way, nobody asked me, no and, they, asked. and they shouldn't, because I'm not as good at this as they are. Let's face it, I'm just not. But in my opinion, episode six returning to the clock making and the wrapping up of the John pathology stuff in episode six, episode seven, the birth of the town, a short interview, shorter interview with Olin and John's personal experience in the town and not being able to be himself and comfortable in his own skin. And then getting back to that story about his, the town's origin story and his mother and really wrapping up the personal in episode seven, I feel like that's where that all belonged. And this really fascinating sciencey stuff about John's brain and how fucked up it probably was because of Mercury belonged at the end of the clock mystery gold stuff. I mean, that's how I felt yeah. narratively. Laura, Laura, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I agree because I felt like there was a whole lot in episode seven. And then, like we are saying, episode six for me just... Um, it didn't keep my interest quite as much. And I felt like there were things I would have liked to learn more about that were in episode seven. I think I would have liked to have the contrast a little bit earlier between the John that was presented to Brian, which sounds like not necessarily the John that the whole town knew for most of his life versus that John. You mean John Booster that Club John? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you happy John. That would have been interesting to me to hear more about that a little bit earlier. And and I I do wish I'm going to go back to the gold. I wish there was more information about the search for the gold. Like I wish Brian had gone out there with metal detectors or something because I feel like we started off with a lot more mystery and at the end it became more of a character study and a study in human nature. And it was. And in speaking of that, after the Mercury Radio Lab episode, we then get the cutting slash BDSM slash oh, final days of John's life. The tattooing. Painful yeah. details of what John was actually doing and what he was up to and where he was at and Tyler's role in it at the very end of Shit Town. Close enough to the end. And this was the part that Laura, like you, I, when I was writing out today my bullet points for talking about these three episodes, I was super comfortable with what was in all of them. I went back and skimmed through them all again, listened to them all again, listened to episode seven. I was like, yeah, but I'm orienting myself, wrote all my bullets. I completely did not even write down the church section. How could you have missed that? I think because I, I was traumatized by it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, I was too. I kind of was just like, 
oh, wow, this is just going into an area that um, beyond disturbing. It was very, very sad. Yeah, very sad. I think that Brian relates it to sort of what people do in their cutters and trying to feel something. We've had a couple of emails about it being something else, psychiatric or on the the sexual spectrum of BDSM. A psychosexual. Uh, We've yeah. had a few. A few. I don't. I don't know. I don't think anybody can really know what it was and what it was about. But it was certainly a painful and difficult listen. I think very interesting. And I think it could have been part of this episode as part of this whole, his whole experience, you know, with these lost romantic relationships and then kind of this degradation personality wise. I think it belonged here, but it also was difficult. So, Toby, what did you think about, you know, this revelation, the way it was presented to us and the fact that this is the final tentpole in the story that we're being told in S-Town about this man, John McLemore. Yeah, I mean, it was a little bit hard to know what to think, right? I, I guess I had different reactions to different aspects of it. And I thought that Brian talks about, like, so that there's two interpretations of it. And one of them is, you know, when you lie down with dogs, meaning that it was because he was hanging out with Tyler and those guys that he sort of got into this weirdness and then Brian sort of has this counter narrative, which is, you know, this is something that he he wanted, and and where else was he going to go to fulfill this and and not uh, have social stigma and all this stuff? And again, I I think Brian occasionally falls into this sort of either or thing when I I don't think it that's really the way it it is. I mean, I think those two things probably interacted. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't even speculate about how. They would interact other than once you're around something that you hadn't considered as a possibility, and then that becomes suddenly you can see that 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 it is a possibility that that can somehow that can like turn into something that you actually desire or crave. It's interesting to me, Toby, that you would talk about the either or thing as being a flaw because. That was one of your observations about Serial season one, which was created by the same team that at the time. I didn't quite get as much as I get now and agree with now, where you made the case that Sarah Koenig was saying Adnan Syed either has to be innocent or a psychopath. He can't be someone who committed a murder and then, you know, has figured out a way to sort of deal with it and is now just trying to claim innocence. It has to be either he's Mm -hmm. innocent or guilty, but then clearly a psychopath. And that was actually a weakness you pointed out in the narrative storytelling in Serial Season 1. And I actually 100 percent, by the way, have made a turnaround and and, in disagreeing with you on that as a weakness. I agree with you. I've come to agree with you on that as a narrative weakness. And I also was conscious of it here in Brian's analysis of this very complicated thing, uh, which was also, by the way, full of a lot of really difficult details to listen to. The re-piercings, the flogging, the tattooing over tattoos, and the screaming and all this stuff. I don't think it was fair necessarily to say it's either he's a cutter or it's that these guys have, you know, basically turned him into a guy who thinks that he wants it. I don't think that that's... It's not it's not representing the full spectrum, I think, of what's potentially going on here. 
Now, now Kevin raised an issue, Laura, and it's come up earlier on the show. There's nothing I hate more than a think piece about podcasts, <laughs> but uh, the, hmm. I really do. I, I, I really, really do. I, I have a serious problem with some of the things that have been written about Missy Richard Simmons. I have a serious problem with things that were written about some of my other favorite shows in the dark and so forth. Like sometimes... It's just a piece of reporting and a podcast. Podcasts just seem to get more of a focus of think pieces than other mm-hmm. kinds of media do. And it kind of bothers me in a weird way. I don't know, maybe because I'm a podcaster. But anyway. Talking about podcasts. Exactly. Um, <laughs> there's been a lot of stories this week about how, you know, does this podcast cross lines, privacy lines? Does it tell things about John that we have no right to know? Because he didn't tell Brian himself. I'm curious to know what you think about that at this point. Between Olin's story and this and this church stuff, do you think that John would have wanted Brian to know and tell this stuff? Yeah, I've thought about this because I, I've, I've read some of these pieces that have come out. Um, and, I, you know, I go back to what I said. I can't remember which taping we talked about this, that I really feel like John invited Brian down there, not necessarily for the story of this murder that was covered up, but to tell his story. And I feel like John opened the door to inviting Brian into his life and inviting Brian to explore his life. And a lot of the information that was parceled out over the whole seven episodes, some of it was recorded before John died. Some of it started before John died. You know what? You hate to say it's fair game, but I feel like the story had started and Brian needed to see the story through to completion. And I think that John, on some level, knew that when he invited Brian down there. What do you think, Kevin? I agree with Laura. You do? You you don't think there's controversy? You don't think we've heard things we shouldn't have heard? Well, I I don't know. I mean, maybe some of the... um Maybe with some of the interviews, there was like some guy who's like a married man who like I'm not going to identify. There was a big thing about that. I I don't know whether or not that was handled the way I would handle it. Mm -hmm. But no, I mean, when you're looking, taking a deep dive into somebody's story and a lot of it has to do with their personality and their psyche and the stuff underneath the skin, then you have to you have to be very probing and. We, I think the thing we talked about before is whenever you tell a story, a real life story, is that you either are going to be disloyal to your audience or disloyal to the subject. Mm-hmm. If Brian knew about the, like, you know, for example, the, the church stuff, the church stuff, the guy masturbating on his porch stuff, right, and didn't share that, he's cheating the audience. He's cheating us of an aspect of something that he knows and has learned and is how we're going to examine the character but instead now he's being disloyal to john by revealing that it's one or the other right and so who you know for the benefit of the story who are you going to be honest with right yeah no i actually agree with laura i think i think john invited this and i think what we know about john i actually think john and i don't want to who knows but it feels like john would be okay with it given what john did say on tape and given what he did make brian privy to in terms of his personal papers and he did let him into his home and he talked about all John manner is uniquely positioned to be able to say that you know <laughs> yeah. he, he would, he's not Tyler he's not cousin Rita he's not the lady for the town clerk you know he, he this is somebody they spent an awful lot of time talking to and I think he's that it's that fact that in the end that he's dishonest to John and honest to the audience about what he knows about John despite all of the personal time he's invested in John right. is a testament to his storytelling. Now, Toby, I know that you have some big 
thoughts about John at this point, now that S-Town's all over. You wrote me a note, and I sort of broke it into sections and thought, I'm going to parse Toby's thoughts out over the whole script. Mm -hmm. But really- You think Toby would want that? No, I think that Toby has something he (laughs) wants to say about John, and I'm going to open the floor- and let Toby tell the story that he wants to tell about John. So, Toby, you've got the floor. I think a lot of his personality is sort of a combination. To me, he seemed fairly clearly both narcissistic and depressed. And my sort of limited experience with people who have those two things going on at the same time is that they have a very hard time accepting the fact that they experience depression the way, quote unquote, normal people do, and that their depression is something more profound. A lot of his obsession over, and I think global warming's the big one, but it's just basically like everything. He has that rant where at the end he's like, you know, Putin, you know, do us a favor and drop a bomb. He's not depressed because of something internal to him. It's that he is able to, better than most people, see the problems in our world. And by taking on that burden, it's very difficult for him. He may believe it to a certain extent, but that's certainly what he's, I think, trying to project. And I think part of the reason why, you know, he was interested in having Brian come down and spend time with them is to make that case that he is a thinker beyond what quote-unquote normal people would be. Now, Toby, it it does make sense. And a lot of people have written and said, and I feel this way to an extent, that S-Town as a narrative is really about America in this moment. Brian's inclusion of some of the language and the vernacular and the culture of a part of America that I think many people who are traditional, like, quote, this American life listeners and like serial listeners may see as other or foreign or, you know, different. I think Brian does try to walk that line and just sort of tell a story about people but maybe doesn't delve enough into some of the cultural elements that actually define the people. And I know that you have some quibbles about Brian's not addressing the race stuff enough. So can you just talk about that? So I think he uses details of racism as just that, as details, right? So he'll talk about you know, these guys were dropping N-bombs and they were making jokes about not wanting to have black people come into the tattoo parlor. Then, you know, there's the KKK lumber and there's the graffiti. You know, there's a little bit about how John, like, really hates racists, but at the same time, he uses the N-word all the time and people would say he used to be really racist, right? So he, he kind of brings this stuff up. It's just it's treated as a detail, like what kind of tree, what kind of bushes there were. Mm -hmm. This story is is largely takes place in a town that's 95 percent white. And he talks about a little bit about the history behind why that is. Most of the people who we talked, they talked to have either chosen to live in this place or are self-defined racists. And I, I just feels like he gives it a pass. To me, it, it, it feels like he's like, oh, yeah, these guys are racist plus, but they're really nice. Like, I guess that's what it is. It's like, in my mind, it's not you're a racist, but. Do you think it's an overcompensation? This is how I feel when I hear this kind of storytelling. I feel like 
I heard this a lot on This American Life during reporting during the campaign, um, the presidential campaign. I hear it a lot in a lot of media where it's like, let's go to this town that voted this way and see how they feel today about the ACA or whatever. And no one is acknowledging the fact that maybe like four feet behind the interviewees where they're talking about the ACA, there's like a Confederate flag flying. Like that's just the color. Like that's just to give you the context of like sort of where these people are coming from. And I almost feel like there right now is this, when I say the podcast is about America right now, the storytelling even sort of fits into that because there is sort of this feeling right now among journalists and among the media of, we need to understand the 50 percent of voters, you know, who voted for Trump or who, who feel so different than we are. And let's just put all the, the the racism stuff just aside and talk about them as as people, as if the racism stuff isn't part of the reason why some people voted with it. I'm not saying, of course, that everybody voted for Trump did it because they're racist. I'm not going to go there, obviously. But I feel like in the media there is, I'm talking about media criticism now, that there is an overcompensation to sort of try to bring people together. So what does this deal with S-Town and Brian? That S-Town, I think what Toby's saying is, in spite of these things, this story is important, instead of actually showing how these things contribute to the circumstances that these people live in. They're not well, ancillary. I, they're, they're actually critical. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, I think, it's, I think it is critical. I think there's you're asked to identify with people, including John, who are racists. You're asked to feel... You know, some kind of affection for this town that was supportive of John. You're, you're rooting for Tyler, which is 95 percent white in rural Alabama on purpose that, that had used to have like a KKK welcomes you banner. Right. You know, I do understand the idea like I'm a New York liberal coming down to rural Alabama and I'm not going to like transpose my values. But I mean, there's more to, to the rural South than racism, certainly. But I think in a situation where there are people or institutions that are clearly racist and then asking you to put that aside and then look at them as being sympathetic, A, I find that, I find that difficult to do. And B, if you, really, if you want that to, to happen, I think you've got to do more than kind of pay lip service. Mm-hmm. To the fact that there's racism around and then be like, oh, you know, Tyler, he's he's like, you know, the sympathetic person. And yeah, you know, not really. Right. If you're hanging out with a guy, if you ran into him at a bar, and you're having a couple of beers with him and he starts throwing the N word around like you, you got to make a decision. Like, are you going to continue talking to him or are you going to leave? Does Brian cut him out of the uh, the podcast? How do you deal? No, with- but I, I think you I, I think you got to contextualize it. I mean, I don't think you can say, well, these guys were, were trashing black people so I just want to be, make that explicit. And then, you know, on and on you go and you have these nice little conversations. And, oh, Tyler, you know, you made this great house. And, oh, Tyler, this, oh, Tyler, that. I think we're forgetting a major, <laughs> major part of this. I, I'm not saying that you, you, you can't tell a story, but I think the idea that you can push that aside mm-hmm. as a factor. It's difficult. And I think if you're going to do that, I think you have to be more upfront about it. And I don't think he was upfront about it at all. I think he was upfront uh, about it. In the, I think he was upfront about it in one place. I think he was very, very upfront about it and did a good job going into the tattoo parlor scene. And then we never heard about it again. I even think there it was sort of, a, you know, he's a little bit horrified by it. But you're still these guys are all portrayed sympathetically. 
Well, I, you know, you, I don't think a whole you end up being like, oh, that's, that's super nice. I actually nice. disagree. I think yeah. that was a well-written entree really? where he, he accomplished a lot. He also accomplished in that scene explaining to me why he wasn't calling them out on it because mm-hmm. he had gone into it knowing that he had something to worry about. And Toby, this is not me cutting you off, except it kind of is, only because all your criticisms are valid. They're out there. And I think you represent a large block of the criticism that's been levied against this story and the way it was told. And um, I don't think you're entirely wrong. I'm I'm not sure that Brian could have addressed all these problems without making a completely different story and a completely different podcast. Okay. I think that you would have had to have a whole separate podcast almost to address the race issues. And I feel, I, I mean, for me, I got it. I felt like the story was more about John and and sort of what was going on. And and the race issue was obviously there, but I feel like had he gone into it, this whole thing would have just snowballed because that would have been such a huge issue. It would have tackle. hijacked the entire podcast. Yeah. Which by the way, that was a choice that was made. That was a that was an editorial choice. And maybe like I mean, this is, I don't know, but maybe at some point Brian Reed decided like I'm not the right guy to tell that story. I'm the right but guy it, to tell I'd, another story. Okay, I, I'll just say one more thing, and then I'll just I'll let it go because I, I think my point is made. But John, who deplores racism, supposedly all this stuff, the way that you hear that he expresses it is that he wants to experience what the slave experienced with the whippings and getting it tattooed on his back. Right. And I'm just like, w- what the fuck is that? You know, that, w- what does that do? That, that That is like sort of the classic sort of narcissistic approach to it is that what's important is that I'm able to experience something because I think that, that that's important for me. But he could have just much easier said, look, dude, I'm not going to support this tattoo parlor unless you start letting black people come in. I think an interesting thing, and again, it was another sort of where the hell did that come from in the last 10 minutes is Brian saying, Oh, people said that that he used to be really racist and said lots of bad, you know, uh, and used a lot of slurs. You know, he used a couple before, but again, that wasn't something that we heard a lot of in the other six and three quarter episodes. Uh, Again, it sort of just kind of came out of nowhere. We're led to believe that he's very progressive and. We never hear John say, uh, you know, drop an end bomb throughout. Right. right. Uh, but then all of a sudden at the end we hear, oh, no, that also changed. What do we find out? He used to be really civically minded and, guess what and we really al- racist. And guess what we also find out? And then out. he also took a, what? We also find out that he's been poisoning himself with mercury oh, yeah. since he was 15 years old. Yeah. We find that out. So we are actually left with this mystery of like. That last 15 minutes. Maybe like-, like in every facet of his life, the contradictions, the narcissism, the racism, the reaction to racism, the. Maybe it is all influenced by the fact that his brain is totally fucking fucked up because it's been poisoned since he right. was a little kid. Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we had no problem talking about him making a murderer, that whole family living in a junkyard, maybe having like lead poisoning. No, we never actually talked about I, that. I talked about yeah, it. You a talk about bit. all the time, but <laughs> we never talked about it on the podcast. But like, we, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's just not as complicated. You know what I mean? Maybe it's just literally he's had mercury poisoning for. 40 years and these ups and downs and all over the places and missteps and tattoos and maybe it is all going to, we don't know. It's all supposition. We don't know. All right. So um, I know this is hard and I know, and this is the whole reason why we're going to talk next week about some of our audience reactions to S town. Cause it's a big conversation that's happening right now. Um, S town is a body of work. It's been compared to a, a novel, a Gothic novel, a Southern Gothic novel, uh, an American journey, uh, 
But we are here to talk about a podcast, a seven-episode podcast. S-Town is a body of work. What do we think? I would like each of you to assign a letter grade and briefly as possible explain the grade that you are assigning for S-Town episodes one through seven as a body of work. Laura Bricker, you first. I'm going between B plus, A minus, because this is better than anything we've listened to in so long. It really is like a novel. But I personally just wanted a little more intrigue. I felt like in the beginning, I thought that's where it was going. And I was hoping for more of a mystery angle towards the end. Toby Ball, what do you think? I guess I give it a B plus. I mean, I think it's it's flawed, but it's super ambitious and it can't be everything. So yeah, B plus. I'm going to give it an A. I give it an A with the context that I'm not talking about the aggregate grade of individual episodes getting A's, B's, and B minuses, and, and averaging them together. I was just doing that on my calculator. As a body of you were literate, yeah, yeah. as a body of work, I give it an A. It is, I think, incredibly clever for this team to set it up as if it is a mystery true crime in order to get millions of people interested in this man's impossible journey through his life his like completely mysterious mental makeup i do believe as some people have written in those obnoxious think pieces that it is a very intriguing portrait of pockets of america that we talk about but many of us don't actually know anything about and i think brian reed's reporting his voice his writing the writing of the show some of the pros on the show is some of the best podcast pros i've heard it's flawed, but that doesn't mean it shouldn't get an A. Sometimes, you know, you read a novel and there are chapters that you hate and you still say it's like one of the best books I ever read, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like this is one of the best podcasts I've ever listened to. I give it an A. Kevin? Well, I think you just moved me up from a B plus to an A minus here. I, um, uh, Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely the most beautifully written podcast that we've heard it is a novel what do you think of the it's final a, passage there with uh, his the mom? whole th- the thing about the the bib county bloody bib did you cry a little that was beautiful did that you was cry a little? Be- no i didn't cry but i, I was, did oh, great uh i thought <laughs> Laura, that was did you cry beautif- a little? please please it god give me, me a of the end of forrest gump when the leaf went floating away <laughs> <laughs> all right go ahead, go and the say. music swell i mean i thought it was i thought that was great and cut that part out i mean i just felt like halfway through episode i, I'm, I just got to get back to ex- this one thing in episode seven they they go and they we you know uh, the KKK guy gets the land and you know is looking for the gold. It felt like they, they were wrapping up a lot of loose ends, and then there was like fifteen more minutes, and it just felt like all that stuff with the mercury and stuff that could have been earlier in the episode, and then you could have f- finished up on what uh, Tyler's up to in the land, and you know uh, one line saying, well if there's gold out there and if it's ever found out there, it's going to belong to Mister KKK or what whatever the hell. It's going to belong to the clan. It's going to belong to the clan. <laughs> clan gold. Uh, I think it was flawed, but it was super ambitious. This is the most ambitious podcast we've ever heard, and it has a lot of excellent elements. Yeah, I, there were just a couple of things that I really didn't, I, didn't, I think it missed the mark on, but I'll give it an A-. minus. Was one of those things Brian's patterns of speech? No. That's, that's <laughs> Thank fucking, you. bullshit. Thank no, you. No, 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 Thank no. you very much. All right. It's time to move on to my favorite part of this podcast. And I know that it feels weird to go from this incredibly deep conversation to this, but it's time for the crime, crime of, of the, the week. week. Oh, your voice is so cute when you say that. Say it again. It's all horse. Crime of the week. Crime of the week. All right. Like Peter Brady. 
You sound like Billie Holiday. (laughs) (laughs) Stormy weather. (laughs) A British woman who blasted her radio has been ordered to spend eight weeks in jail. But it wasn't any ordinary noise complaint. Sonia Bryce is accused of playing Ed Sheeran's Shape of You on repeat for half an hour. (laughs) Now, this is not the first time neighbors have complained about Bryce's peace-disturbing habit. In December, she spent six weeks behind bars for breaking a noise injunction ten times. A mother of five who lives next door said listening to Shape of You for 30 minutes was the last straw. Bryce denied the charge, telling the judge she doesn't even like Ed Sheeran. (laughs) Could it be me, Your Honor? Her neighbor says after being forced forced to hear his hit single over and over again. She doesn't like Ed Sheeran anymore either. (laughs) Neither would I. So here's my question for the panel. Toby Ball, I'm going to start with you. Is there a song that would prompt you to call the police if your neighbor were to play it over and over again on repeat? What do you think, Toby? I'll tell you, the only real life thing that was even close to this that I experienced was on New Year's Eve, like a bunch of years ago, when uh, we went to New York City to go and see Buddy Guy play, like, Ring in the New Year. And then afterwards, a whole group of us went to this party at somebody's apartment, and one of these guys thought there was a girl there, and she wasn't there. But we grabbed beers at the keg, and they were playing Bye Bye Miss American Pie again (laughs) and again and again. And it was literally the only thing that was going on at the party. Everybody was dancing to it, singing along to it, except for us. And my friend Brian's finally like, this is just fucking ridiculous. So his theory is he's going to go, he goes to the stereo and then tries to turn it down really slowly. Like nobody will notice <laughs> if he just like edges it down. <laughs> Although the fact that that's the only thing that's going on. And so all these people in the party are like, who are you? What are you guys doing here? So Don McLean's American Pie is Toby's answer. What about you, Laura Bricker? Is there a song that would send you over the edge and make you dial 999? As they do in the UK. Yes. I don't know the real name of it. Do you know that obnoxious Cotton Eye Joe song that they always say? It's like, hey, hey, it's hey. It's Cotton Eye Joe, right? Oh, God. That song just... Oh, it makes me just... Oh, I can't stand it. And they always play it at weddings. And you're like, oh, make this song end. Yes. Uh, I'm going to go with Songbird by Kenny G. And... Georgia, the Michael Bolton version. Oh, over and over again? <laughs> what about you, Kevin? You have to imagine yourself like being sick in bed, like you can't get out of bed and your window's open and the neighbor's blasting something. I think I would probably become homicidal if I heard Ba with the Ba, the bang, a bang, diggy, 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 said the boogie's up, jump the boogie. I like that song. Ba with the Ba, the dang, a bang, diggy, 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 up the boogie, said up, jump the boogie. Now, if a guy who just spent 20 minutes. Ba with the Ba, the dang, a dang, diggy, 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 said the boogie, said up, jump the boogie. Wait, one more time. Ba with the Ba, the bang, a dang, diggy, 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 said the boogie, up, jump the boogie. That's before you even get to My Name is Kid Rock. I will tell you something. The other thing I was thinking about picking was House of Pain, only because of the glee that like white people have when there oh, is God. a successful quasi maybe hip hop song done by white people. Why well, you got to bring race into everything, what, what Rebecca? About Eminem. <laughs> well, it's a different Eminem's a different story, but uh, the ball with the ball, I'm on board with you right. for that. Even though Toby likes it. Toby, I, I like that song. I hear that you I like it. I think it's on one of my Spotify lists. After 30 minutes, <laughs> you won't like it anymore. Isn't it 30 That's minutes That's probably long? true. It feels it's like 30. it is. <laughs> All right, we should probably end it on that note. Remember, next week we will return to address some of your audience questions and comments around S-Town. 
We'll also talk about some amazing true crime updates. And at some point, we have to talk about that ending of Big Little Lies. So we're probably going to do that next week as well. So you can send your emails and voice memos to crimewriterson at gmail.com. You can tweet us your questions and comments. And you can also find us at Crime Writers on, on Facebook. Just look for us there. So if you want to follow us on Twitter, of course, we're at Crime Writers on. But each of us also have Twitter handles. And we are all active participants. And we tweet almost everybody back. Laura Bricker, what is your Twitter handle? It's at Laura Bricker. And it's L-A-R-A. Laura Bricker. <laughs> Laura. <Thank you. laughs> Toby Ball, what is your Twitter handle? At Toby Ball N-H. Kevin Flynn, what about you? I can go back on Twitter now that I've gotten through episode seven, huh? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Reb Lavoy. Our show's theme song was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and oh, used with, with the their permission. <laughs> Our handsome line producer is Henry Lavoy. We record in Square Egg Studio at Partners in Crime Media. A.K.A. the studio we built in our closet to shut in Kevin Flynn's Kid Rock record collection. On behalf of all the crime writers, we will catch you later. Later. All right. That was a deep episode. It was long, but I think it was good. There you go. The people will enjoy it. It's a lot of fucking content to cover. It was good. I know. And we do another one in 10 days. Hey, Toby. Yeah. You basically like saved us from another tweet storm with your uh, tirade. I appreciate it. <laughs> or you started a whole other one. Yeah, that could be. Partners in Crime Media. Thanks again to Hunt a Killer for sponsoring our show today. Hunt a Killer is a murder mystery subscription box service that delivers new clues to your doorstep each and every month. Hunt a Killer puts your true crime sleuthing skills to the test, and you don't even have to leave your house. The stories unfold via creepy correspondence, things like letters, articles, objects, and tools, all from a Hannibal Lecter-type killer curator. To help support this show, they've offered a 10% discount for our listeners. Use the code WRITERS and get 10% off. So head on over to huntakiller.com and register right now. Come join the hunt.